This is episode number 187 of Patrick Jones Baseball. On this episode, we have Ty Moore. Ty is currently the Director of Player Development at Gardner-Webb University. I actually worked with Ty this past year with the Baltimore Orioles, and I was really intrigued by his knowledge of the game, but also a little bit of his background, too. So he, he won a national championship as a player, as a freshman at UCLA, um, heavily recruited out of high school, ended up getting drafted in the 12th round his junior year at UCLA, played a few years in the Pittsburgh Pirates organization, and then was unfortunately released when it went on to play indie ball a little bit. And so we get into a little bit of indie ball stories and, and what that's really like. And I think Ty just brings a, a lot of uh, a lot of good stuff. You know, just he, he understands the game. Um, there's so many nuances when it comes to just hitting and, and player development overall. So I think Ty is going to uh, bring a really good perspective in this episode. If you haven't already, please make sure to head on over to iTunes and subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes. Um, leave us a review, which would be awesome. It helps other people find the podcast so they can develop and grow as coaches and players too. So, um, ladies and gentlemen, here is Ty Moore. All right, we now welcome on Ty Moore, who is the Director of Player Development at Gardner-Webb University and former colleague of mine well current colleague we're always we're always gonna be colleagues i guess um appreciate you coming on today man no no thank you for having me so this is your your first taste of of college baseball now um as essentially a coach you're the director of player development but you also have a um a really good background as a player too i know growing up remember in spring training because you were with the orioles this past year in spring training we were talking a little bit about how you you had offers to go everywhere in the country to go play college baseball what, what was that like essentially being like the LeBron James of baseball <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't go that far not at all but um no it was it was really cool um the recruiting process can get a little hectic sometimes um and I was fortunate to have you know more offers than than I could probably handle um I definitely didn't get to explore all of them but um, kind of the way I handled it was I, I sat down with my parents and um, you know, I was very fortunate that they were able to you know, take me around the country to you know, go on unofficial visits and see the schools that I was interested in. Um, so I kind of laid out a, a, a framework of, of the top 10 places I had in mind. Um, I did my homework on them, I researched them, and then my parents and I, we, we just made the trip. We found a way, whether it was booking a flight and flying across the country or, you know, driving up the, up the road to UCLA or, you know, driving six hours out into Arizona. You know, I was, I was going all over the country and, you know, I, I was serious about it. I didn't take it as just, Oh, Hey, I'm getting recruited. This is awesome. Like somebody wants me to come play baseball. You know, I, I treated it as a business decision because that's a really, it's a lifelong decision. You're not going to college for four years. You're going to college for, you know, 40, 50 years to set you up for the rest of your life. Um, so I took everything into account and, and it was cool to see different environments, um, East Coast, down South, West Coast, you know, you know uh, Midwest. I, I, I saw it all. Um, and I think that's a good way for players to look at it. 
you ended up choosing UCLA. What, what were the other close options? Like, were there, was there another close option that you were – it was like 50-50? Um, in terms of, of in-state and California, I, I don't think there was another one that was 50-50. Um, I, I was – you know, nothing wrong with them, nothing against them, but I was never a USC fan um, in Orange County. Uh, a lot of people are. It's, there's a big, you know, Southern California following. Um, I was just never one of those guys. I, I kind of started to like UCLA when I was in middle school. Um, I just I loved the way Coach Savage, you know, went about his business and, and and coached. And I was going to college games. I was going to UCLA games, watching with my parents in the stands, just as a fan, like no recruitment or anything. I started going sixth, seventh grade, and you know, I just kind of fell in love with the way it was it was coached and the way they went about the business on the field. I also uh, read that you were close to signing out of high school. Do you re- regret looking back not signing for a, a good amount of money out of high school? No, because uh, there's, there's a, a very, very big reason, the biggest reason in my life. Um, I met my wife at college, um, so I obviously would have never had that opportunity had I signed out of high school. Um, so I'm, I'm fortunate I went to school because I met her. Um, from a purely baseball perspective, um, it was, it was cool. It was, it was interesting. Um, that was the year that the new CBA, uh, got signed and, and it was like first draft that had the new slot values. Um, and you know, the bonus pools where you couldn't spend over, you know, the 10th round. Um, so it, it was interesting to navigate that. Um, I thought I was going to be a much higher pick out of high school. And when I got drafted in the 25th. Uh, by the New York Yankees I was you know very very grateful to be drafted but at the same time I was like man like I was really expecting more Um, but little did I know um, you know I got sent off to summer ball I played in the West Coast League Um, UCLA sent me up there I was playing all summer and then about three days before the you know signing deadline I got a call from the Yankees and they said hey you know our first rounder we found something wrong with his arm you know, he's healthy, but, you know, we're, we're kind of docking his signing bonus and we have a lot more money to spend. You know, here's the offer of X amount of dollars. And, you know, when that gets put in front of your face, it's like, oh, wow, like this is real. Like this is, I mean, I, I didn't think in the 25th, you know, being a, a prep bat in the 25th, I was like, oh, man, you know, they, they're drafting me because they like me, but th- there's not going to be a real offer there. It's kind of just like a draft and follow situation. And, when there was a real offer, you know, it was, it got real, real quick. Um, and my parents and I had to, couldn't sit down because I was up in, you know, Northern Washington, you know, top of the United States. And my parents were in Southern California. So I had to call them real quick and tell them what was going on. I called my agent and I was like, I have like 48 hours to make a decision. And, you know, I'd be lying to you if I, if I told you I didn't consider it. I was, you know, at the point of signing, but made a promise to my parents that, you know, I would go to college and, you know, get my degree. And uh, I, th- I think it all played out, you know, the way it was supposed to in the end. Well, you ended up winning a national championship. So that, that doesn't hurt either. Exactly. Yeah. First year too, right out the gate, you know, we won in 2013 and, you know, that was a good way to kick it off. And I think, you know, in the fall of my freshman year, I was kind of debating it like, man, should I have signed? Should I not have signed? Cause I had a tough fall. Um, and I think a lot of our guys, here at Gardner-Webb, we're starting to learn that. Like, the fall is not easy in college baseball, especially as a freshman. Like, I got discouraged, and, you know, I was I was 
coming out of high school, I, I was untouchable. You know, I, I hit everything. I pitched. I was striking guys out at will. And, you know, I stepped on campus at UCLA, and I was, I was just getting punked, man. Like, juniors, seniors, like, they were just crushing me. And I had never experienced that before. Um, so I definitely debated it. But once we, you know, once I truly bought into what UCLA was preaching, you know, it was just hit the ground running and never looked back. Well, one of the cool things uh, that – that you did at UCLA from a hitting perspective, one of the cool things, just impressive, is how you your junior year you walked more than you struck out. What was that a tribute to? Because if you've, I mean, if you look at all your numbers on Baseball Reference, you've never been a guy who has had trouble just putting the ball in play because you've never had a bunch of strikeout numbers. So, I mean, is that an approach thing? Is that just confidence? Like, what do you attribute that to? It's definitely an approach thing um, and confidence. I think they kind of go hand in hand. Uh, you know, to have a good approach, you got to be confident in it. Um, but for me personally, it was, you know, I, I, I call it a blessing and a curse. You know, I was able to get to any pitch that was thrown to me, kind of like a, you know, I don't even want to compare myself to him, but like how Vlad Guerrero did it was, you know, he, he, would, he would hit some pitches that nobody should even be able to touch. Um, and I call it a blessing and a curse because, you know, I knew that I could get to those kinds of pitches and sometimes it would get me into trouble because I'd be in a hitter's count and advantage count and I would, you know, recognize something that I knew I could get to. And, and just because you can get to it doesn't mean you should. Um, but at the same time, it helped me out when I was in two strike counts because, you know, I, I could foul off pitches and it would really fluster pitchers. You know, I'd foul off pitches that they would make and it was their A++ pitch and I would just spit on it or I'd, I'd foul it off back and you could see them, they'd get the ball back. Dang, like that was, that was the one I thought I was going to get them and I would just, you know, keep myself alive until eventually they made a mistake and, and capitalizing off mistakes I think is, is a big key to hitting and just putting yourself into situations. And I, I really put an emphasis on that too. You know, be a tough out, be a hard out when you step into the box. And, um, you know, that, that was kind of my mindset going in all throughout high school and then early, early college years. And then once I got, you know, smarter and, and more experienced, I really started to develop, you know, okay, what are my true strengths? How do I build off that? How do I focus on my strengths to, you know, maximize my potential as a hitter? So essentially with less than two strikes, just becoming a little bit more picky or not, not as, or no, more picky, I would say with less than two strikes versus just anything you could get to. Yeah, I started off, you know, I was earlier in my years, I was a big time OO hitter. You know, I stepped in the box ready to hit. And if it was in the strike zone, like I was swinging. And a lot of the times I did damage because I was ready to swing. But as I got older, and, and you know this with the Orioles, you know, we, we started talking about refinement. My hitting coaches and myself started talking about refining my approach to where it's like, okay, you can come up OO and you can take a fastball down and away and you can poke it through the six hole for a single. That's great. There's nothing wrong with that. But as you get older and, and you know, guys get smarter, they get better too, and the, and the bar gets raised, you know, those fastballs down and away for, you know, the, you know you're hitting through the six hole for a single right now. You know, you get to the big leagues, you know, Arenado's not letting the ball through the six hole. Right. You, know, you have to find a pitch that you can really do damage with and not just, you know, survive in advance. You have to do damage. That doesn't mean hitting a homer or a double every time, but, you know, you're, you're probably not going to handle a pitch down and away 
as well as a pitch that's, you know, center cut middle of the plate or in your zones that you know you can really hammer. You know, you have to be a lot more picky then. Now, as another part of it, too, the park where you play at, and I've never been to UCLA, but I've heard of West Coast baseball, how it's a little bit more small ball because the ball doesn't fly as much. Did that play a part in not only your approach, but UCLA's offensive approach? Yeah, I think it did. Um, we, we knew it. Um, and we were fortunate that my team, at least from 2013 to 15 when I was there, um, we had had guys on our roster that had been to Omaha before, and they had played in TD Ameritrade Park. Um, and, and they knew how that ballpark played. So we weren't, you know, and at UCLA, we're, we're, very, we're very stingy on what we consider success. Um, you know, we don't, we don't get conference rings. You know, we don't celebrate conference championships. Of course, we acknowledge it, and, you know, it is an accomplishment to win a conference tournament or a conference championship. But we don't treat anything less than a national championship. You know, we don't consider that to be a win. You know, we are, we are looking to win a national championship, whether it's football, basketball, baseball. You know, our basketball team doesn't hang conference championship banners. They hang whoa, whoa, football? Well, we haven't, we haven't succeeded much there, but that's their goal. You know, they're, they're, not, they're not saying, hey, we won the Pac-12, which I don't think they've done that since 2004. 13 they won the south but um back to yeah that we're, we don't look for you know conference success we knew what it took to win omaha because guys had been there and they'd come up just short but you know we we took that into our own ballpark and we said hey you know we we might miss out on some opportunities because we're we're playing this way you know at home early in the season but we knew it was going to pay off in the long haul and at night i think it gave us a good simulation of Omaha, you know, our night games, we're, we're, you know, two, three miles away from Santa Monica. We're, we're real close to the water. Um, so when the sun went down, we would get a lot of moisture in the air, you know, kind of ocean breeze blown in, all didn't travel. And it kind of simulated Omaha um, before they made the adjustments to, you know, the fences and stuff like that. It simulated very, very closely. Um, so we, we branded our style of baseball to, know give us the best success for where we wanted to be eventually down the road now when you're at UCLA you're facing top level competition and, and especially when you guys are going to play even just midweek teams right they always want to you're going to throw a, a really good pitcher at you guys just because of of who who you are did that help you prepare you for professional baseball or like what were the differences between playing college baseball at a high level in that pitching versus pitching in the minor leagues. It had to be pretty similar. Yeah, I think that's where the whole West Coast baseball thing is, is at its best. Um, excuse me. Um, that, I think that translates the most. Um, it was a big emphasis on the West Coast, not just UCLA, but everyone we played, our midweeks, our conference, you know, players really learn the game. It's, it, we might not have the, the top raw, you know, talent, the tools that, the SEC or the ACC might have, um, you know, we, we might not throw as hard or hit the ball as far, but the West Coast does a really, really good job of teaching the game of baseball and, and raising players' IQ. I think that was what helped me the most. But, um, you know, the, the pitching day in and day out, those guys knew how to pitch. And it was more so, 
you know, figuring if, – if you could figure out the pitcher's plan on the West Coast baseball, you could be a good hitter, regardless of your, your physical attributes or, you know, how big or strong you are. If you, if you outgained the other guy, you could have success in, in West Coast-style baseball. If you control the controllables and, and, you know, practice what you preach and trust your training, West Coast baseball, you can succeed in that environment. So transitioning over into the minor leagues, did you just take that same approach and that just it, it allowed you to have some success right out of the gate? It was a little bit of a wake-up call for me um, in pro ball. I had success. My numbers said I had success. Um, but I, I don't think I really adjusted to the pro style of the game until I got to high A. Um, so when I came in, I was still hitting the ball on the ground a lot. I was trying to hit behind runners. You know, I was, I w I was playing college style baseball and there's nothing wrong with that. But, you know, like I said earlier, it, it really didn't get through to me until one of my hitting coaches was like, Hey, you just, you know, hit a one hop through the six hole and a like, good job. Like, you know, dap me up at first base. And after the game, he came up to me, he's like, man, you got to start hitting the ball in the air more. And, you know, my three years at UCLA, I was told, you know, hit the ball on the ground, hard on the ground, low line drive. And I had success doing that. And I, I had done it so much and so well that, like, it was just ingrained in my mind. And, you know, finally somebody telling me something different, like, hey, you got to put the ball in the air more. And I'm like, well, I'm hitting, you know, I'm hitting 298 right now and I'm, I'm hitting the ball on the ground. I don't know why I need to change. And he said that comment to me. It was like, do you think Arenado's letting the ball get through the six hole? You know, do you think Cano, you know, is letting the ball get through the four hole? And he's like, even hitting the ball in the air. He's like, those outfielders, they're fast, man. Like, you got to learn how to drive the ball and do damage and not just, you know, rely on, you know, what you've relied on in the past. You have to keep figuring out how to get better. So adjusting from the college game to the pro game, you know, I, I, I really had to, you know, think about my approach and what I was trying to do. I couldn't just rely on physical talent and what I had done in the past. I had to find a way to evolve. And I think that's the biggest thing that gets guys in trouble in the pro ball is, you know, they have success and they get a little bit complacent. Well, the game's evolving every day and you have to evolve with it. Um, and, and I think that can, that can be the black hole sometimes for, for, you know, young professional players is, know relying too much on what they had success on in the past and not you know saying okay that was great but that was then this is now what do I need to do now what did wh how did you go about making the change of trying to get the ball in the air because that's another topic I mean did you completely revamp your swing was it contact point intent what was it when I first I mean there was a lot of trial and error um, and, and I think that's the beauty of the pro game is because, you know, that's your life, that's your job. Like that's what you do. And you wake up in the morning, you eat a good breakfast and you're at the ballpark and you have all day to figure it out until game time. You know, that's, that, that's kind of how I went about it in the beginning was, you know, okay, let's, let's try a couple different things out. Let's see what it is. And at first I thought it was mechanically, um, cause I had a lot of moving parts in my swing. And I figured that that's got to be the issue, right? And it's got to be, you know, all the moving parts. And, and if I can just simplify that, you know, I'll be able to, you know, get the ball in the air more. Um, and that was part of it. And, and it kind of took me, you know, failing to understand what the, what the big picture was. And I, I came to the conclusion that, you know, the moving parts were a factor, but it was all about 
timing and the contact point. And, and, you, and I was not giving myself enough time to hit because my parts were moving. Um, and, and it was really just putting an emphasis on, you know, I can move and do all my things, but when I get to basically the launch position, you know, what's my timing like? You know, where's my contact going to, my contact point going to be based on what time I get to launch position. Um, and then once I kind of put those two and two together, it was, okay, now let's practice the contact points, you know, really work on just catching it out in front. Um, and, and that's when I started to figure out that catching it out in front doesn't mean pulling the ball. You can still catch it out in front and hit it the other way. Um, cause I had always thought, you know, when somebody told me to catch it out front, that means they wanted me to bang it off the right field foul pole. Well, I finally realized that, Hey, I can catch a ball out front and still, you know, hit an extra base, hit the left field. Um, and, and that was kind of it. And then I started just, you know, hammering away at contact points doing, you know, tri-plate VP of moving it up. You know, every time I started to barrel it up, I would move the plate up and move the plate up and move the plate up. Um, doing, you know, onset offset VP. I was just really working on, hey, what ball's coming in different angle? You know, what do I got to do to, you know, make sure my contact points and my timings in, in the right place? So uh, during all this, is someone guiding you or helping you or is this you figuring all of all of this out um, just by yourself because I imagine that had to take a while if it was solely just you. No, it, it was definitely not just me. Um, in the very very beginning, it was just me, um, and then I kind of realized how pro ball went. Was you know I, I found out that no coach is going to seek me out to you know fix these issues. I had to go ask for help, um, and, and that's kind of how. My favorite coaches in pro ball were the ones that, you know, kind of left you alone. But the, the second you asked for something, it was like, all right, drop what I'm doing. Like, let's go get this done. Um, and, and that's how it was. I would work with, if it was in season, obviously I had my hitting coach and I would grab him and do lots of early work or post work. Um, and at our spring training facility during spring training or extended or wherever I was instructs um, when we had our, hitting coordinator come in or one of our top hitting guys, you know, he would be on his two or three day visit just to check in and see how things were. I'd work with him um, as well as the hitting coaches that were, you know, stationed whether they're in the GCL or they're just, you know, special assistants. Um, I worked with guys like Larry Sutton and Ryan Long. Um, you know, they were two key instrumental guys that helped me learn how to hit along with Jonathan Prieto. Um, there were, there were multiple guys that, that helped me, you know, kind of fix my swing and, you know, figure out what I needed to do. Um, but those guys, they weren't telling me what to do. They were asking me. Um, and I think that's what made me a better baseball player because they weren't just telling me, Hey, you know, you need to do this. And then, you know, you need to do ABC. They were asking me questions and saying, Hey, you're your best hitting coach. I'm just here to help you and assist you. But you know, them asking me questions really led me to think like, what really is the solution? You know, how do I figure this out? Um, and they were there every step of the way, you know, guiding me, but it was, it was awesome for them to, you know, not just tell me how to hit. They were like, Hey, you, you're going to figure it out. Like your swing's going to fall into place. I'm just here to kind of, you know, a bowling analogy, put the bumpers up and keep you in the lane. Yeah, that's a, that's an interesting point right there. And I, I, um, one of the things that I've been noticing lately is how 
players are, are people pleasers. And so if you ask them to do something or, and you say like, well, what do you feel? How do you feel? And if it's a drill that you just told them to do, they're going to more than likely say, oh, it feels, feels good because they're trying to please you versus what you were just saying is, you know, asking, you know, like, how are you, like, what does that feel like? What, like, what are you, what's the situation here? What are you thinking? That's a big one. That, that's what I like to use lately. Like, what are you thinking about this or that? So that's a really good point about uh, not telling you, but asking, asking the question, which I think is huge. Now, after, um, after you were done playing a little bit of affiliated baseball, I saw you went to the Frontier League, hit over 300. You were only 24 years old. Were you just burnt out, and that's why you didn't want to continue? Because I imagine with you already having some affiliate experience before, you put up one more year, not even put up another year, maybe just even a half a year, you're going to get picked back up again by an affiliated club. Yeah. Um, you know, I went to the Frontier League. It was actually a carousel of teams. So I got released by the Pirates um, in 2018, signed with the Winnipeg Gold Eyes of the American Association, went up to Canada, you know, did spring training, had a really good showing there. Um, and we make our trip. We were opening up in Texas. So it was a real long trip. We played along the way, played in Fargo, North Dakota. Um, and as soon as we played in Fargo, we were getting on the bus to go to, I think it was Lincoln, Nebraska. Um, and right before we get on the bus, I get called in and they tell me I've been released. I was like, oh, okay, great. You know, I'm, you guys were telling me how bad you wanted to sign me. You know, I played well in spring training and then I get released. And I was like, well, my career might be over because <laughs> I just got released from affiliated ball. I just got released from indie ball before I even got like a official registered at bat in the season. Um, and so I went back home from Canada. I was home for two weeks and I was following along with independent ball and one of the teams, the Sioux city explorers, um, you know, I was watching their game and their second baseman got hurt, you know, slid into the, the, the side fence and he, you know, busted up his knee and sure enough, like coincidentally, like I get a call. During that game, I get a call from their manager. He guess he went into the clubhouse and he was like, "Hey, this is you know so and so. I I wanted to ask you like, you ever played second base before?" And I said, "No, but I sh I can sure as heck try. Like I, I I can hit well enough to play second base. I know that." And he was like, "Hey, if you if you got an infield glove, like we know you can hit. Like if you can block some balls and make the throw to first, like we're good." So I went out there. I signed with them. Got off the plane in in Iowa. Um, went straight to the ballpark, DH'd my first night. Um, didn't didn't play second base, just DH that night after the game. You know, I was, you know, lined out twice. I was 0 for 4, and I was like, oh, I'm going to be good. Like, you know, I just had a good game. You know, I had good ABs and went home, woke up the next morning, got Chipotle, you know, and then I get a call from the Schaumburg Boomers of the Frontier League, and they said, hey, uh, we just traded for you. And I was like, what do you mean we just traded for you? I just got here. And I was like, I'm on the way to the field. And he's like, they haven't told you yet. And I was like, no. So as soon as I get in, I get called in, told I got traded. And then that's how I got to Schaumburg. But um, had a great season there. Loved every bit of it. Um, pretty good competition. And then after that, you know, I just was getting some looks from some teams. Um, I was getting calls from affiliated, you know, wanting to come work out, like, like the stats I put up and, um, shared some video and, and everyone was was all on board. I just never had anybody pull the trigger on the affiliated side. I had uh, the Atlantic League, a few contract offers from a couple different teams. And I was considering playing for the High Point Rockers because um, it's, you know, only about 25 minutes away from my house. I was going to play in, you know, the top indie ball league and stay at home. And 
then I kind of realized I was like, you know, I, I just, I just don't know if I want to do this anymore. You know, I don't want to know. I don't know if I want to go back to the indie ball grind and, and, you know, try and get picked back up because I thought at that point I was playing for the wrong reasons. Um, you know, I, I thought that I should play to prove people wrong and, and to show that I could get picked back up again. Um, but at that point I wasn't playing to get to the big leagues anymore. I was just playing to be like, you know, tell people, Hey, you guys messed up. You should have never released me in the first place. I was playing to tell the pirates that, you know, I, cause I was pissed off that they released me in the first place. And I wanted to tell Winnipeg that, you know, I, I you guys made a mistake. And then I was, I realized like, that's, that's not why I want to play baseball. You know, that's not a good reason to do it. Um, you know, if it's for the love of the game or to try and, you know, make the big leagues one day, that's a good reason. And I just couldn't put myself to think of, of, you know, I couldn't think to play for that. And I decided, you know, if that's not my goal, then I'm not going to play anymore. So I hung him up and, you know, I, I, I'd be lying to you if I said that six months after I hung him up, I was like, you know, chomping at the bit. I had to, I had text messages written out. I had my finger over the call button. Like I was, I was so close so many times of like making the call and being like, Hey, I wanted like, I wanted to like send an email to Michael Jordan and be like, I'm back period. And like that, I just wanted to do it, but I couldn't. I couldn't do it. <laughs> yeah, that very valid point about playing for the right reason. I think you, you see that at almost every level of, of players playing for someone else or, um, you know, specifically for even just monetary gain or whatever it is. So I, I think very, very valid point. I think anyone at, at any level could, can relate to that and um, should should constantly remind themselves, you know, why are they playing this game? So I'm actually glad you stopped playing because, you know, we would never would have been able to connect yeah. right? See, or what you ended up joining the, joining the Orioles. And um, that's how we, we got to know each other this past year. And um, which was awesome. A lot of fun. Um, you know, you actually, you, you were an outfielder. So I remember learning some stuff from you from the outfield, doing some different outfield drills, which is great. And now you're in the college game. You're at Gardner Webb, director of player development. Tell us a little bit, A, about Gardner-Webb, and B, what does the director of player development do? Yeah, of course. Um, so Gardner-Webb um, is in a one-stop light town uh, named Boiling Springs, North Carolina. Um, we are right on the border of North Carolina and South Carolina. Um, and when I say Boiling Springs is a one-stop light town, it, I mean, it really is. Um, it is technically a different city than Shelby, North Carolina, which is actually a little bit bigger city, uh, more well-known in North Carolina. But um, because of the zoning of how the, the, the district works, it's technically a different city than Shelby. So um, we, are, we are right there on the border of South Carolina, um, been around for a very long time, and it would look you know, like a new university compared to what it would have looked like you know, eight to 10 years ago. Um, there's been a lot of stuff that's been renovated and, and uh, you know, new buildings that have been built. And it is a beautiful campus um, on the surface, um, top-notch instructors, coaches, you know, athletic department, academics, admissions, everything top to bottom. I've been extremely impressed since I've got here. Um, and more specifically, our coaching staff here um, is what I consider to be one of the best in college baseball. Um, we have, of course, head coach Jim Chester um, has been in baseball or the college ranks for a long, long time. I think he's entering his 16th season in college baseball. 
Um, he's coached at every level, you know, D2, D3, um, Division One. He's, he's done it all. Um, he's a Pittsburgh guy, blue collar. I think it fits perfectly into, um, you know, what college baseball is all about and, and you know, establishing that culture. Um, as well as our assistant coaches, Anthony Marks, um, College World Series champion, was kind of the, the, you know, the darling of that year with the Coastal team. Um, Big-time player. He, he's been there. He's done it. He's, he's got the experience. Um, and, and the players love him. Um, and his work ethic is, is unrivaled. Along with our pitching coach, um, you know, Connor Scarborough, Scarborough excuse me, um, he's a young guy. He's done a tremendous job with our staff. Um, and he actually played here at Gardner-Webb. So um, he's kind of the longest tenured guy here from playing the coaching here. Um, and you know, our other, our other assistants, we have our volunteer, Jake Marinelli. Um, we have our director or director of baseball ops, um, Parker Lynn. Um, and then we have another graduate assistant, Evan McFarland. Um, the unique thing is, is we are, I don't know this for a fact, we're probably the only coaching staff where we have one guy over 30, you know, a lot similar to the Orioles, you know, it's very, very young. Coach Chester is the only guy that's over 30 on our staff. How old is um, Coach Chester? I don't know, but if I did know, I probably wouldn't want to reveal, you know. So he's age. old, okay. No, he's not old. He's, 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 uh, he, he's in his middle years. Um, he, he's definitely not old. Uh, he got into coaching at a very young age. So 16 years for him is probably, you know, the average age of a head coach in college baseball. Um, but we're, we're fortunate, man. We've, we've got a great setup here. Um, and, you know, like I said, we're, we're, we're continuing to see how we can make this program better each and every day. So where do you, where, what do you exactly do within the program as director of player development? Like what, I mean, that's a, that's a role that I feel more colleges have, um, at least I, since I've started paying attention a little bit more in the past few years, that role has been, been um, open a little bit more. And there's or maybe even just actually come to light. I've never even really heard of it back when I was playing in college. So what, what exactly do you do? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, so I focus mostly on the offense. Um, offensive background for me, um, I thought that was kind of the best way to do it. And, and what I do on a day-in, day-out basis is I work with our hitters uh, along with Coach Marks. And I, first and foremost, I integrate our technology. We work with Brad Soto um, and Diamond Kinetics. Um, and I put every th one of our uh, position players that hits uh, through a baseline testing just to see where they're at, you know, well, how strong are they? What do they look like when they're coming in? We got video on them. We've got the Rapsodo, you know, measuring their exit velocities, their launch angle, um, their spin, and just kind of, you know, what do we, what do we have coming in? Um, and then once we perform that baseline testing, uh, I always got video on the guys and, and I start to develop uh, and put together a spreadsheet, um, a document of, you know, what are these players' deficiencies? What are their strengths? Um, in creating plans for them. So there is on-field coaching, um, but it's a hybrid role of, you know, being on field with the guys and also being up top in, in the office um, and, and, you know, doing the behind the scenes work where I look at a guy's numbers, I analyze that and, and see, you know, what kind of drills, what kind of plan do we, do we maintain? Uh, do we add more pressure to this guy? Do we have to take pressure off of this guy and lighten the workload? 
Um, and, and that's kind of where, you know, it, it's been revolutionary in the college game um, is it, it gets more individualized um, inside of a team setting. College baseball is very, very much a team game with, you know, you have to buy in and, and be a part of the culture that's set there. But the director of player development gets to, you know, provide that individualistic, you know, input for each and every guy. Um, and that's, that's what I'm aiming to do. And that's what I have been doing since I've stepped foot on campus is, you know, our, we have a grad transfer first baseman that is a, you know, a big physically imposing guy. And we've also got a center fielder that is, you know, five foot eight, a buck 40, but he runs like the wind. Those are two completely different players. You know, five years ago, most colleges would kind of lump those guys together and say, this is how we're going to play baseball as a team. You know, you big donkey at first base and you little guy in center field, you need to play the exact same way. I don't think that's the case. I think every player has their own framework and, and it's all about optimization of how you can get that out of them. And that's what my role is, is to, you know, optimize what we can get out of our players and make them the best players that they can be. That's good. I, I, I do agree with the fact of in college baseball, it, 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 in the past, it hasn't been very individualized. Everyone just kind of lumped together. And I think that's maybe that is why a lot of these programs are going to the director of player development, similar to what you guys are doing. So it is, it does become a little bit more individualized and have plans. Now, what do those plans look like? I mean, obviously I know you can't give away like exact details, technical details, but I mean, are you just listing out, Hey, what I want you to focus on when you're hitting day to day, or are there like certain metrics that you want them to try to attain to like, what, what does a plan look like? Sure. So I'll use Rap Soto um, as an example. So we'll, you know, we had the other day, we ran them on the, on the VLO machine, right? Um, and what I was looking for was consistency and then, you know, their max. Um, and if a player came up and was, you know, not very consistent, but they had a really, really high, you know, max exit velocity, you know, it's in the tank. You know, you know that, if, if he can put up a 105 off of, you know, a hack attack fastball that has a really, really high spin rate and it's throwing over 90 miles an hour, you know, he's probably, he's probably got it in the tank where he can really hammer a baseball, but he's just inconsistent because it's throwing, you know, it's throwing hot, it's throwing heat. You know, he might not be able to catch up with it or, you know, he might need to simplify his swing. And to go along with that, we've got the video on it to, you know, and I know, you know, this, we're, we preach the same thing and I credit the Orioles for this. We want to be evidence-based, you know, we want to just not tell them, we want to tell them and show them and say, Hey, you know, this is what we have to back up our claims here. Um, we want to be able to share a plan with these guys and say, Hey, look, this is what your deficiencies are. Um, and, and when we do that, we have the Rapsoda reports, um, and I will come up with a plan that basically will state out some drills or compare league averages of, you know, hey, you're at this for your exit velocities. You know, our goal is going to be this. We want to implement these types of drills. Um, this is going to be a list for you to pick from for your early work routines. I always want the guys to have options to pick from. 
um, because I never want to say, hey, you need to do this drill, this drill, and this drill, um, because not every drill works for every guy the same. So I give them a list of options, and none of them may work for them. They might not like any of them, and that's fine. We'll, we'll get back to the chalkboard, and, and you know, we'll draw up whatever we got to draw up. But I try and list off as many you know, drills and scenarios that I think will help the player out. And I let them, you know, we sit down and we talk and say, hey, what do you like out of these? Or you have any questions on these? If you're not familiar, I can explain them. We need to figure out what's the best for you to, you know, work on a day in, day out basis of what's going to get you better. And we have our Rapsodo meetings. We have our Diamond Kinetics meetings, which go over the metrics. We explain what the metrics are to them. And we kind of explain where they're at in terms of, you know, reaching those metrics. Um, and then that's kind of what a plan will entail is it will have their metrics, it will have their, their benchmark goals, um, and then we'll have their, you know, what we call their adventurous goals, which are goals above the benchmark um, for them to be like, hey, I don't want to just reach the goal. I want to go above and beyond that and have a goal beyond the goal. Um, and depending on what their metrics are, we, we, you know, write up a specialized plan for them to, you know, reach those. I, I love the objective feedback of showing them. I think that's a, the, the quickest way to get buy-in from players. I also, like, one of the things that I've been doing, trying to do a little bit more lately, you know, just in the private settings, I have my own cage now, is is explain to them, like, hey, like, before we go over drills, before we, we do any of that stuff, like, we have to understand that emotions, feelings, thought the thought process, whatever you want to call it, that affects mechanics and your swing probably more than anything else on a day to day in, day out basis. One hundred percent. So it's like we gotta we gotta make sure we're we're hitting that home too. And like what are you thinking about during the day? I, all that stuff it fascinates me. And I just think that's it has to be number one, right? And it has to be and I know you're 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 very into the mental game too, so that's another reason I want to bring this up. Um, but I, I just think that even when you ask a player, sometimes if you don't really, really know them, or sometimes even if you do, like, Hey, are you, are you feeling confident? Like, what are you thinking? Like, uh, even if someone else is around, he's going to, a lot of times he's going to lie and be like, yeah, yeah, everything's feeling good. I'm feeling good. But I just, I know more times than not, it's, it's not the case. And I just think the, the emotional aspect of, of your swing and of your mechanics can be solely dictate um, whether you're mechanically efficient or inefficient too. Yeah. And I, I really do think that's the case. Um, the mental game plays a huge, a huge part in the physical game. And I think everything starts with the mental game. Um, I'll go back to UCLA days. You know, we trained with the late great Ken Revisa, um, and we practiced everything on the mental game we practice stepping into the box like we practice you know checking our focal points mine was the easton logo on our on our bats mm. and i would you know stare at the focal point take a deep breath and reset before i step two feet into the box we practice that stuff and what some people may consider that to be eyewash it is eyewash if you don't buy in and treat it you know like a game like rep you're not going to get anything out of it unless you fully commit to it um, and we did that. And even when we got to Omaha, we, we had a practice in Omaha where we literally practiced being in the hole, being on deck, stepping into the box, 
taking your sign from the coach and working with the base runner, getting off the base. Like we practiced that stuff before we even took a single ground ball or a single, you know, swing on a pitch. Like we did that in Omaha at the end of the year in late June. Like you don't, that's, that's what successful championships teams do. Like they take care of the little stuff before you even, you know, have to take care of the stuff on the field. And exactly what you were saying is like, the mental game is the preface for, for anything mechanical, anything, you know, talent wise, it starts there in the mind. I was, I was listening to, to um, Anthony Iaposi, who's the Cubs hitting coach. We're going to have him on the podcast after the season. And he was talking, we were, the question, I forget where, what he was, where he was even at talking or, or if it was uh if it was a podcast or what it was, it was a while ago talking about players getting in slumps and, and trying to help them. And he's like, what you got to understand is, look, like hits cure all. So whatever you have to tell that player to get a hit, whatever be a, uh, a drag bunt, whether he get jammed and hit a, hit a ball over the third baseman's head, whether it's a cue, whether it's some eyewash drill, whatever it is, like once he finally gets that hit and out of that slump, then he's going to be able to get back and get rolling again. And yeah. So much of what we do is, is as hitting coaches is, is the mental game. It honestly, I think it's first. I think we have to, we have to check, out, check that box first before we move to anything else just because it's just it's so crucial. And I wanted to bring this up to you too because I know you're a big Lakers fan. Uh, I thought of, um, <laughs> first of all, good luck in the finals. Uh, I, I think they're going to be able to pull it off, but I, I think it's going to be a close series with the Heat. But I was thinking about Kobe Bryant. And I was thinking about, and I said this, I think, on social media, about how he was having some problems trying to separate his personal life from his life on the court, and his game was suffering. And that's why he created the Black Mamba, that alter ego when he stepped out on the court, he became a different person. And so I'm wondering is if, if that would help hitters, right? When, they, when Ty Morris steps into the box, he doesn't become Ty Moore anymore, right? It's like it's some alter ego that you've created, that the second you step in the box, like you become that thing or that beast, whatever it is. And I don't know. I just, I wanted to bring that up to you because I know you're a big Kobe Bryant and Laker fan. Yeah. Well, first and foremost, you know, thank you for wishing my Lakers luck. I do think it's going to be a good series <laughs> there. I, I'm calling Lakers in six. I don't think it's going to be, you know, like the other rounds. I think it's going to take. Them yeah, it's going to be tough. It's going to be tough. But uh, um, that's a really, really good point. Um, and I, I kind of equate it to, Every, every baseball player has heard this or had to deal with this, like, you know, separating offense from defense. Um, but I think you took it a step further, or Kobe Bryant took it a step further, of, you know, separating competitor from, you know, regular person Kobe Bryant. Um, and I think that can be used in baseball and, and needs to be used in baseball, especially in the batter's box or when you tell the rubber is, you know, when you step – into that box or you get onto that rubber, like you have to have the mentality of like, I'm the baddest dude on this field. Like you have to have that. It's, it's, this game will swallow you alive if, if you don't think and have that type of like, you know, overconfidence. Um, you, you have to believe in your abilities, but at the same time, like that's exhausting. Like you, it, it's exhausting being that person. Um, and I think that's where the mental game and the mental practice comes into play is, you know, when you step into that box, you're, you're, no, you're that overly confident person where you think you're the baddest guy ever. But 
when you take a swing and, you know, it's a called strike or, you know, you foul one off or, you know, you get to the next pitch, you got to step out and you got to, you got to shut that down. You got to be, you know, conscious. You got to be more IQ related and you got to think about the game. And then that's how I use the focal point too, was, you know, I'd step out, I'd take my deep breath, I'd reset myself and analyze what just happened. Okay. What was the result of that pitch? Okay. Now I thought about it. I get it. That's what happened to me. Okay. Now it's back to compete mode, <sighs> deep breath. And as soon as I put both feet back in the box, I was back to being the baddest dude on the field. And it was straight up, just, you know, bring it on. Let's go. So you're and saying, you're saying it's important to have that alter ego, if you will, but you have to be able to separate it even during that bat. I think so. I think it's a little bit different with baseball um, in comparison to basketball. With baseball, it, it's a lot slower pace of a game than, than the NBA basketball level. Um, and I think with baseball, if you try and be that person for nine innings straight with, with no break, like you're going to burn out. Yeah. I mean, it may not be, may not be that game. It may not be the next game, but like over a course of time, like you're going to be exhausted and you're not going to be able to do it anymore. I think taking it pitch to pitch and having a pitch to pitch mentality, if you can reset, you know, in and out, and it's not easy, but if you can reset in and out, like you're going to be mentally stable, you're going to be, have a mental advantage. Um, and, and you're going to have clarity. I think if you can, you know, think about what you're doing, step into the box and then turn the mind off, turn the thinking off and just compete and trust your abilities. And then as soon as that pitch is over, if you can step out and turn the mind back on and say, okay, what just happened? What, what is he trying to do to me? You think about it. And before you step back in, you turn it off and it's yeah. compete mode. I think if you can master the art of that, you're going you're gonna to see success a lot quicker and a lot more frequently. Totally. You don't even need to, right? You don't even need to turn it on, honestly, for what, three to five seconds? Like once mm -hmm. you, I mean, you, whatever your routine is, right? You hit the plate, you point the bat at the pitcher, and then you get in your actual stance and then you turn it on. Pitcher throws the ball three to five seconds later and now you can relax for a second. It's kind of similar to being an, out, an outfielder because I was an outfielder. I know you were an outfielder you don't have to stay locked in for every single second, right? You throw a pitch then you kind of let your mind wander a little bit and then you, then you get locked in again for the next mm -hmm. pitch. So I think it's, I think um, you're saying the same thing if I, if I um, can relate. Yeah. hundred percent. Awesome, man. Well, Ty, this was a lot of fun and I'm glad you're doing well at Gardner Webb and, um, being director of player development. It was, it was a lot of fun being able to be with you. Unfortunately, it got cut way, way, short um you know we're only only able, able to be down there for six weeks in spring training together but wish you nothing but the best man and i'll be pulling for you guys this year and i'll be uh watching closely uh what what's the best like way to follow gardner web but you guys are more active on twitter or instagram yeah so twitter's probably our, our best way to follow, follow along um like i said earlier in the podcast we have our bulldog baseball league which is a four-team league of all of our players and our developmental program. Um, those are going to be live streamed through our Twitter. Um, so if you want to watch those games, more than more than welcome to. We welcome it. Um, it'll be pretty good competition. Our guys have been getting after it in the fall. Um, and then also when our season does officially start up in February, uh, our games will be streamed on ESPN Plus as well. Awesome. We'll make sure to put the, uh, the, the Twitter handle in the show notes. Absolutely. Awesome. Thanks, Ty. I appreciate it, man.
Thanks, B. Jones. Take care. Thanks for listening to another episode of Patrick Jones Baseball. Make sure to go subscribe on iTunes so you can stay up to date on the latest trends and techniques being taught in player development. Until next week, hope everyone stays safe.